Hello listeners, welcome back to the Founders Club podcast. Today's guest is Sean Rain, founder of the China Market Research Group, keynote speaker and author of The War for China's Wallet and The End of Cheap China. Sean Rain provides clients with strategic market intelligence that they need in order to make smarter decisions in China. He helps multinational and domestic Chinese Uh, companies, also investors, to understand how to seize advantage of the fastest growing economy in the world with actionable initiatives. He works with clients from a variety of industry, Fortune 500 and leading Chinese companies, private equity firms, SMEs and hedge funds. Some of the clients include Apple, Yum, Brands, Fidelity, Richmond, DuPont, Google Boss, LG Electronics, Samsung, and LinkedIn. So please enjoy this wide-range conversation with Sean Rain. This is the Founders Club podcast. If you enjoy, please consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to my YouTube channel, or simply connect with me on LinkedIn. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Founders Club podcast. Today, my guest is Sean Rain, founder of the China Market Research Group. Hello, Sean. How are you? Hi, Giorgio. It's great to be here uh, on the 15th anniversary year of the company I started in Shanghai in 2005, the China Market Research Group. Excited to talk to you and have your members and listeners here what it's like to be an entrepreneur in China. It's amazing. Also, today in China is a special day, so it's good to start by interviewing you. Indeed. It's it's also nice because I think a lot of people around the world don't realize how much China is normalizing um, in the post-COVID-19 world. You're starting to see lineups at Chanel again, at the Apple store. So things are normalizing. People don't often realize that when I talk to investors or business executives in Europe and in the United States, they still think that we're hit and ravaged by COVID and that we're stuck in our homes, but that's not the case. I've been going to the office for about six weeks now. That sounds like a really encouraging news for all the people who are in the West still waiting to their countries to also get back to normal and to business. Um, I want yeah. to start with a little bit of introduction of uh, yourself. So can we start from there? Sure. Well, uh, I am 42 years old, as uh, we just spoke about, but I've been in China for most of the last 23 years. So I came here as a teenager originally to study Chinese at Nankai University in Tianjin, China, which is up in the north. Um, At the time, it was a three-hour train ride from Beijing to go from Beijing to Tianjin. Now it's about a 25-minute ride um, via the high-speed train. Um, So I feel very comfortable in the China market. Originally, I'm from the United States. I'm actually half Chinese and half white, so I'm perfectly 50-50, both ethnically and in time living in China. And I started my company, the China Market Research Group, in 2005, and we really do two things, Giorgio. The first is we help multinational companies like Apple, Samsung, Richemont develop their China strategies through getting consumer insights. And the other half of the business is doing due diligence for private equity firms, hedge funds, and long funds looking at investing in Chinese companies. So it's been a a wild 23 years in China, 
and an even wilder 15 years as an entrepreneur with CMR. To regards to CMR, uh, I'm curious to know more about the origin story of how you started the company and because it's a long way, 20 years ago. So can you walk us through what it was it like? Sure. So what is it like being an entrepreneur? I think entrepreneurs are kind of different beings. Okay. They like to see a, a market that can't be broken. And they like it when people say to them, you can't do this and you prove them wrong. Um, so basically, I've always been an entrepreneur. I never wanted to work for anybody, Giorgio. Um, when I was a teenager, I actually opened up my first company called Rhino Productions, and I organized 3,000-person dance parties in Montreal, Canada. Um, now, Montreal has an 18 drinking age, so I actually used to ship American students from the United States, where there's a 21 drinking age, to Canada to party. And we used to just dance the night away. And it was doing that type of um, experience that I realized I didn't want to work for Goldman Sachs or work for McKinsey. It was a lot more fun for me opening up this party company. And actually, it was a lot more lucrative. Um, so what I ended up doing next, uh, I went to Harvard for my graduate studies in Chinese economics. And I opened up an English language training company in 2001 in Tianjin. And the brand positioning was that every teacher was a former student or a teacher at Harvard. And you know what? It boomed. It was great marketing. I was able to attract a lot of students. The problem, though, Giorgio, is I wasn't able to attract teachers back in 2001 who were Harvard graduates to want to work in Tianjin, China. The second problem, especially in those days, was China was quite corrupt. It's much better now. You have to give credit to Xi Jinping for cracking down on corruption. But back in 2001, you really didn't want to have a business on the first floor because either you get asked for protection money from the police or from tree ads. So I learned very quickly that this was not a good business. I made about 50,000 RMB over three years. Um, I couldn't even afford to fly home. It was a real rough time. So after those two experiences of opening Rhino Productions in Canada and what was called the Shaoshan or Little Mountain English Education Company in Tianjin, China, I decided that I wanted to get into venture capital. And so I was actually the chief of research of a venture capital firm called InterAsia Venture Management for a while. And I was in charge of education and um, IT investments. Some things happened, we invested money. Um, I, I ended up joining another company in a startup role called WebCT, which was an e-learning software company. And I realized, you know what? I actually wanna be an entrepreneur myself. And that's how I set up CMR. So in 2005, um, the e-learning company that I was the country head for in China was actually sold for 180 million US dollars um, to a company called Blackboard. I exited and I decided to set up CMR as an angel investing company. So I wanted to go back to my VC route roots. And I said, let's look for great investments in China that I could put money into. And frankly, um, I didn't think of opening up CMR as a consulting firm. What happened was Apple called me and said, Sean, we've heard you're good. We trust you. Can you develop a strategy for China for us? And then Lane Crawford, the luxury company, said the same thing. So I realized, wait a minute, we have a real business. So I split the company into two. There's CMR, China Market Research Group, that I run. And then there's CMR Capital, which my wife runs now, which does our investments. 
So I, I, in many ways, I set up CMR by accident. It wasn't really me sitting down with a business plan saying, this is what I want to do. It was the clients came to me. And that's what I often like to tell young entrepreneurs right now. Don't spend too much time on a business plan. Come up with an idea and shove it out into the marketplace. If you can sell and sell even if it's in beta, then you know you have a real business model. It doesn't make sense to spend six months writing a business plan because the market shifts so quickly. Exactly. So, you... so I got into CMR as an accident more than anything. Right. So exactly. You could, to some degree, you kind of experience some market pull, which led you to uh, pivot. Uh, what was your initial strategy and what is your initial MVP would say? And uh, can you tell about some of the hard or some of the challenge, hard decision that you had to take and some of the challenges you had to face uh, with CMR during this uh, well, I think period? There's three big challenges. I think the first is we position ourselves at the very high end of strategy consulting. So what I like to tell potential clients, you know, you can't go wrong with a BMW or you can't go wrong with a Mercedes. These are great, great cars. They're mass produced though. But if you want something special as a car, aren't you going to buy a Rolls Royce or aren't you going to buy a Ferrari? That's how we position ourselves at CMR. We tell clients and potential ones, if you want to get a great management consulting firm, go to McKinsey. They're like a BMW. But if you want something special, if you want that Ferrari, come to us at CMR. So that's a very arrogant brand position because we're a tiny firm compared to McKinsey that has a hundred year history. But I think the first challenge that I had was developing up the brand equity, being able to convince the market we're actually better than McKinsey. That took many, many years of me producing a lot of content. So that's why I write books. That's why I had a weekly column in uh, CNBC for many years. It was positioning ourselves as a thought leader. That's the first problem that I had. It's still a problem that I struggle with every day. The second major problem Giorgio, was um, HR. It's very difficult to recruit and retain top Chinese talent. I think it, you know the job market here is very different from the United States. I'm not as familiar with Moldavia or with Italy, but in China, people are changing jobs every year. It's very common for a 28-year-old to have had five jobs in five years. It doesn't matter how much money you give them. It doesn't matter how much stock options you give them. It doesn't matter how much training you give them. A lot of Chinese just like to job hop. And part of that was that over the last 15 years, you had every major company in the world coming to Beijing or to Shanghai to invest. So the job opportunities were really quite plentiful. Um, so it's very difficult for me to recruit and retain top talent, especially because other companies know that somebody who's worked at CMR for two or three years is trained well, is trained to think strategically and analytically, and is also an honest person. So the two big problems I had was HR related as well as brand equity related. Now, the third thing, I think more on the personal basis is being an entrepreneur can be very lonely and it can be very scary. You know, I would honestly, I've had panic attacks several times over the years because you sit there and when the great financial crisis hits in 2008, you're like, oh my gosh, I've been in business for three years. Are we going to go belly up? Are we going to be able to pay salaries? Are we going to be able to pay rent? What about accounts receivables? I think a lot of people underestimate the personal stress that entrepreneurs go through. And very often you don't have anyone you can talk to. So it can be lonely. 
If you're an entrepreneur and you're scared, you can't tell your team because your team might get scared and quit and they might go to a big company that's more stable. You can't tell your family because you might scare your wife or your husband. So being an entrepreneur is very lonely and I don't think people realize um, how lonely and stressful it can be. I mean, I, I've been pretty successful. 15 years we've been running, um, but I still go through panic attacks once or twice a year wondering where am I going to be able to pay the bills? How am I going to be able to expand? Is the world changing? Is the business model incorrect for the modern technology era? Uh, yeah, exactly. You mentioned really well, and you really well said that um, as an entrepreneur, you experience mostly two kind of emotions. One is terror and one is excitement. It can be excitement in the morning and terror in the evening when your uh, customers call you and ask or uh, have a problem or an issue with a software or in your case could be something different and uh, or to retain even talent and going to talent retention in China is really hard people hop jobs a lot do you come up with some strategies specifically to retain those talent uh, during this time or still struggling or what what, what, what honestly what... I'm still struggling you know and, and it's not just me it's not just Sean Ryan it's every company you know Uh, we interviewed Citigroup's senior executives and KPMG's senior executives, and they said they have 35% annual turnover. Actually, when we interviewed Fortune 500 companies, over 70% of them said they have 30% plus annual turnover. Now, to give some numbers and some um, idea of what that means, in the United States, um, the average turnover in a Fortune 500 company is 11%. When you get 9%, That's considered too low because you're not getting rid of dead wood and you're not bringing in new fresh ideas. If you're at 13 to 15%, then it's too costly because it's so expensive to recruit and then train new talent. But again, 70% in China are getting over 30%. So I don't think anybody really has come up with a good strategy for being able to retain people, except for some of the Chinese companies, both the state-owned enterprises, because they're able to dangle a hukou out for people who work at their company for enough years, or the companies like Alibaba or Byte, you know, Douyin, TikTok, pre-IPO, because they're able to dole out what could potentially be millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and for some even billions of dollars. I don't have a good um, strategy for recruiting and retaining talent, frankly. Right. In the last years, we, we've been assisting in this, uh, it's not a big threat, trend, but we see more and more foreign entrepreneurs trying to start your own business and to some degree emulate what you did in terms of success. So in terms of entering the Chinese market, uh, what are some of the barriers that, that this uh, small foreign entrepreneurs Uh, have to face? Is it in terms of language, culture? What is it mostly based on your experience? I think the ones who succeed tend to speak Chinese, tend to be younger and have a I can do anything type of attitude and feel that it's important to understand the local Chinese culture. So the ones who succeed tend to have been here 5, 10, 15 years, studied Chinese, Uh, at university here, did a degree like you're doing here, and really become part of the culture. The ones who fail tend not to speak the language very well or at all. It always amazes me how executives can come here and sure, they can speak English in the office, but unless you speak the language, I don't understand how you think you can understand what the 
the market wants, what the Chinese consumer wants. And if you don't understand culture and if you don't understand history, um, that also will be very problematic. That's why, like, actually, when I study um, Chinese studies, I was doing the economy, but I was really looking more from a sociological, maybe even an anthropological standpoint at how China has changed over the last 130, 150 years, because you need to know how the Chinese think about everything. How do they think about the United States? How do they think about their own government? How do they think about raising and rearing children? How do they think about savings rates? If you don't really understand the psychology and the psyche of the Chinese, how are you going to be able to succeed? And so you look at guys like Mark Vanderchis, who is one of the co-founders of Tudo. His wife is Chinese, and he spent many years here from a young age before he co-founded Tudo. You can see um, Fritz, uh, who is the co-founder of Chunar. It's the same type of thing. He spent many, many, many years here. Duncan Clark from BDA, he also spent many years here. So what I recommend to young Chinese entrepreneur, uh, young foreign entrepreneurs is if you want to succeed here, at a minimum, spend one year learning the language. Once you get that done, then you can start thinking about what are the great business opportunities. And the other thing is, when you spend that year, try not to talk to other foreigners. Try to spend all your time hanging out with other Chinese. That's what I did um, when I was at Nankai University. I tried to hang out with Chinese, and a lot of the foreign students thought I was arrogant or a jerk. But I didn't come to China to hang out with other foreigners and party. I came to China to learn about Chinese culture, and that's why I did that. The, the foreigners were great people, but I really was on a mission to learn about China. Great. Yeah, I, I saw this pattern in other people who successfully integrated or acquired the Chinese language skills. Uh, going back and uh, talking about the change, uh, I want to pick your brain about education and maybe more specifically about the Chinese education system, which is probably based, which is based on the on a strong, on a strong road to learning mechanism, created obviously to make sure that people had a good memory and remember things extremely well. And traditionally, this starts from memorizing ten thousand characters, which is not an easy task. And by furthering uh, memorizing historic uh, philosophers, literature, poetry, and so on, uh, do you? Th and and obviously, this this didn't change not only in China but more globally as the education system. Uh, do, do you think that uh, at the same time this uh, strong road to learning mechanism uh, suppress uh, the breakthrough innovation that comes out of China? Yeah, so I think I'm very um, supportive of the Chinese government overall. I think they've done a good job at pushing China from the lows in the late 1970s. Um, and there have been some reforms in the education system. Um, you know, even though there's a lot of criticism today that it's rote memory based, it's actually much better than it was even just 10 years ago. Um, but there's still a lot of ways to go. I think the education system still needs major reform to try to promote creativity um, and different ways of thinking about solving problems. Um, but I don't think it's as big of an issue as it used to be. There are a couple reasons why. One, you see so many Chinese are going to the United States or Europe to study for high school, college, or graduate school, and they have that ability to push the boundaries of creativity. They can bring back that type of learning process and thinking process to when they try to innovate in China today. That's one thing. But second, I do think that the current Chinese system of rote memory actually does help China on business model innovation and slow incremental improvements. 
Um, and that's why I think the way people learn, just plod, slowly improve, is one of the reasons why we have such a successful high-speed network, which is uh, rail network, which is why we see so many of the phone companies like a Huawei or Vivo or Oppo, they might not have been the initial inventor or innovator like Apple was, but they were able to take what Apple did or Samsung and improve upon it at a, a cheaper price point by being methodical in how they do research, methodical in how they build up the supply chain, methodical in distribution. And so, you know, I think we need to have more creativity in the education system, absolutely. But the system also works in some ways um, by, by pushing that methodical and straightforward process of learning and implementation. So you mentioned that uh, a, a lot of innovation doesn't consist in coming with uh, new products, but more on uh, business models. Am, am, am I correct? Yeah, so I think, you know, a lot of people criticize China and say that it's not innovative. That's really not true. I mean, I wrote the book, The End of Copycat China, way back in 2014, predicting that China would become one of the most innovative nations. And it is. You know, you look at mobile services, China's three, four years ahead of the United States, probably five years ahead of Europe. And I actually think that because China is now cashless, uh, because there's so much ordering through apps, because there's so much food delivery, um, both for groceries as well as for restaurants, I actually think that Chinese innovation has helped contain COVID-19 because you had people could just sit in their house and buy things while in the United States, you still have so many people running, paying with cash or credit cards in Whole Foods or in Costco. Um, but I don't think China's inventive yet. And I think a lot of people make, they, they make a mistake by equating invention and innovation. Invention is more creating a totally new product, a totally new technology. Right now, China isn't great at that. Right now, China just takes what worked in other markets and improved upon existing technology to fill consumer demands. And that's why you see in the battle between the United States government and Huawei, Huawei is starting to get hit hard because Huawei doesn't have the chips, the semiconductors. They still rely on American chips like you know Qualcomm and Intel, Texas Instruments. Those are all big vendors to, to uh, Huawei. That's why you see, you know, the operating system is a real problem because Huawei's own operating system really is trash compared to Google Android, compared to Microsoft, uh, to Apple OS. And so that's why right now you saw, I believe it was yesterday, that the current CEO of Huawei said they're in survival mode because the United States is trying to limit the invention. Uh, and the export of inventive American products to Huawei. Right now, China still can't compete on invention. It'll happen. It'll happen in the next 10, 20 years, but Chinese industry still isn't there yet. They're more focused on innovation. Right, so uh, going back to part of your work, which is helping multinationals to um, came or have a good uh, China strategy, what are some of the trends that you see right now happening in China and what those multinationals should take into, into account when thinking about the biggest, their China strategy? The biggest trend that I think is surprising people, and we've been talking about it for about, oh, 
uh, six, seven years um, is the rise of domestic Chinese brands. Um, Chinese right now want to buy Chinese brands made by Chinese for Chinese. When you talk to a lot of foreign brands, they still have the mistaking belief that Chinese only want to buy foreign brands, are slavishly in love with foreign brands, whether it be luxury or automobile or even in food. You know, when you talk to a lot of people from Australia, they'll say, oh, no, Chinese won't drink, you know, anything but Australian milk and they won't you know, eat anything but Australian beef. But the reality is that some of the dairy products coming out of China are really quite good now. And they've got good quality control, good tastes, good packaging. And some of the beef coming out of Qingdao, I think, is better than any beef that I've ever had in Australia. So I think there's been a seismic shift over the last five, six years where Chinese want to buy Chinese brands. Now, what surprises people when I talk to them is that's actually been accelerated because of COVID-19. And when I say this to American executives or to European executives, they're kind of shocked because when they read the New York Times or they read the Wall Street Journal, they think that Chinese are angry at the government and think that the government has done a bad job here. Well, actually, we found that support for China's government is actually at an all-time high since I've been here for the last 23 years, where people feel that the Chinese government did a great job. And what that's created is this groundswell of patriotism, where Chinese are very happy with how the government and the Chinese population together, working together, sacrificed, stayed in their homes, um, and then were able to contain so far COVID-19. Now, when Chinese are looking at the Trump administration and looking at the inept response and the total chaos and the fighting between the president and various governors and various mayors, you know, the Chinese say, well, wait a minute, maybe Chinese brands are superior to American ones. They can't even contain COVID. They can't even have, you know, people aren't even willing to wear a mask going into Costco without protesting or bringing guns. You know, there's a lot of patriotism for China right now. And I think that's a mistake a lot of foreign brands make. They come in thinking they can just put out their advertisement with a blonde haired, blue eyed celebrity say that they have 100 years of heritage in Italy and the Chinese are going to flock to them. That's not going to be the case anymore. That might have worked 10 years ago. That might have worked even five years ago, but it's not going to work anymore. You have to completely change your brand proposition. When it comes, comes to entrepreneurship, there is a very strong government driven at large scale in support of entrepreneurship. And uh, can you maybe inform of an advice or explanation? How how did uh, how can you explain this uh, large would say uh, help and push on on the entrepreneurship side uh, that comes from the government and what well, advices what advices sure. do you think other countries should take from that in order to encourage? Because we, we kind of like an experiment. We never see a big country with so many people to, to help entrepreneurship and to push in this direction. Well, I think you can start on two ways. You can look at the government will say, launch an initiative like Made in China 2025. And they will rally the country to focus on indigenous innovation. And they'll get local governments, they'll get state-owned enterprises, they'll get private Chinese companies like Alibaba and Tencent to work together and come up with ways to develop indigenous innovation to 
sort of rally that spirit and that patriotism to say that China can be inventive, can be innovative. And I think also important politically and geopolitically is that there's a fear that China, that the United States could cut off the supply chain, which is what they're doing with Huawei. So you feel this massive pressure by the government to convince companies to focus on innovation, to focus on being able to decouple, if necessary, supply chains so that Chinese industry doesn't need to rely on the United States or anywhere else because of economic sanctions by Trump on various entities. But what the government will also do is they'll help promote money-making opportunities. So they've created a 30-plus billion dollar um, private equity fund just to invest in the semiconductor area. So that's whole part and parcel of Made in China 2025. It's not just getting governments to focus on it, but it's actually bringing cash. And so what you've seen is a lot of local governments have venture capital firms, have private equity firms, will give free rent or low rent if you are an entrepreneur opening up in one of their technology parks. Um, so they've really created these entire ecosystems from the corporate side all the way to the government side at the provincial, central government, and local mayor level to really support entrepreneurship. And they've given ways to make money. They've also made it easier um, by launching new um, stock exchanges for entrepreneurs to tap into capital. You know, if you're in biotech, you can IPO um, in Shanghai with much lesser regulations than if you're um, an IT company or an FMCG company. Similarly, they also launched the Shenzhen exchanges to make it easy for the tech companies to start up and, and raise capital. So you're starting to see the government give money and help people figure out how to raise capital and get entire ecosystems together. That's very different from the United States where, you know, the federal government doesn't get that involved and sort of lets market forces push things um, much more so than in China. Right. So we see to some degree uh, this uh, market uh, Chinese uh, government that tried to also attract uh, foreign talent and push for innovation. Um, I wanted to um, to ask you about uh, there is a the Chinese dream and American dream right now. Can you talk a little bit about the differences and, and, and maybe similarities between those two uh, dreams? Well, I think, let me answer it slightly differently. I think I want to look at it about a point of optimism and looking forward versus looking backward. One of the problems, and I'm American, so I love the United States. I've actually thought about moving back to the U.S. and running for the U.S. Senate at some point. Um, what stopped you that? A lot of the politicians have is they like to push nostalgia too much. You know, you look at Trump and his whole MAGA, Make America Great Again. That fundamentally means that America was great before and has gone bad in the last 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, whatever it is. And a lot of Americans like politicians push this. They like to say, we can make America good, great again, but we have to blame somebody. We have to blame whether it be blacks or Hispanics, whether it be blaming China. Politicians like to find scapegoats, whether it's the Democrats saying it's the Republicans' fault or the Republicans saying it's the Democratic fault. What that creates is, a, I find, is a very pessimistic, angry consumer base very nostalgic for the past. And that's why you see, you know, in a lot of advertising or a lot of concepts, it's 
you know, about how Gap was in 1969, which was one of their big advertising campaigns. Or you see people using old style music in, in restaurants and creating that 1950s diner atmosphere because those were the good old days. China, on the other hand, doesn't like to dwell on the past. They say the past was not great. We need to look at the future. We need to find large, big events, whether it be the Beijing Olympics or the Shanghai World Expo, the Asia Games in Guangzhou, and they tout this out five, 10 years ahead. And they say, everybody, we need to rally together and work together to try to make China great in the future and push progress, push advancement. What that creates, I think, is a very forward-looking, much more optimistic consumer base in China. So we can parse and look at what exactly is the China dream or what it looks at the, what is the America dream. But I think the key difference right now is a much more angry, much more pessimistic American consumer versus a much more optimistic, forward-thinking, positive Chinese consumer. And you, you see that reflected in how people shop, in spending habits, uh, in what they buy, where they buy, how they buy, and just their general thinking about the world. What stopped you from uh, running in the U.S. Senate? Nothing stopped me yet. I'm actually strongly thinking about it. Um, I think the, the, a couple areas that prevent me, um, first, the biggest is I'm not sure I want to put my family and have them get overly exposed to, I think, the mean-spiritedness of American democratically elected politics right now, whether it be you know, mud-flinging from the other party or whether it be newspapers. You know, I have to really think and convince my wife to uh, let us enter the political arena because then everything is going to become public. And I think that's one of the problems in the United States is a lot of good people, a lot of great people that would like to help, that would like to be public servants, just don't want to go through the hell, frankly, of being attacked in the press. You know, I already get attacked enough in the press. I already get attacked enough um, on social media I'm not sure I want to expose my family. That's the big thing. Um, but I strongly consider it. The other reason why is I love living in China. Um, so my business is growing very well here. We are hiring. So if people want to apply for jobs. Um, and so I love living in China and I like what I'm doing um, business-wise. But I've reached the age that I would like to do more for public service and try to give back. And I don't know if that's writing more books I've written three books, The End of Cheap China, The End of Copycat China, and The War for China's Wallet. Or if I should do you know, a, a documentary series on Netflix or CNN, or if I should run for public office. These are all things that I'm sort of putting in my head, Giorgio. Um, to wrap it up, um, what is the impact that you want to have as a founder? Well, I think... That's a good question. I Actually, nobody's ever asked me that question before. I think... I want to make the lives of my employees and of my clients better. So I'm a big believer that leadership is not necessarily about creating some vision that everybody can follow. I think that's part of it. But I think what true leadership is making the lives of the people around you better. So I want my employees and colleagues to be happy. I want to be able to pay them well enough that they can take care of their own families and realize their own economic dreams. I also want to create a work environment that they're happy, that they love coming into work, that they're excited about the type of quality people that we have. 
and then I want my clients to be able to be able to make money. I want them to be able to take my strategies, take my recommendations and analysis of the market and implement that and be able to make a lot of money so that they can take care of their families as well. Um, that's what I want to do as a founder. I've never really been motivated by money. Um, money's great as an entrepreneur if you can make it succeed. It doesn't always succeed. But if you can, then yeah, financially, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. But that's not my motivation. My motivation is helping the people around me. Um, that is probably what I would push as being a founder. Now, I do have certain goals, um, but I'm going to keep trying over the next 10, 20, 30 years until the day I die, uh, reaching my business goals. I haven't reached them yet. Sounds great. Yeah. There is this famous uh, quote, being a leader is not about your success, but it's about the success of people you work with or who work for you to some degree. Uh, Sean... That's a great quote, and we didn't plan this. So you somehow had that quote on the side and just were able to say that after I talked about that, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've read it on some book, actually. I don't have it right now, but I just uh, it, it grasped me and uh, I have it in my mind to some degree. Um, Sean, uh, thank you for uh, joining the Founders Club podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Giorgio. Thanks.